You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Our usual notes before we get started with the show, make sure you guys follow us on all the social media sites on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're nearly 1,000 followers on Instagram. Really excited about that. Need to up that Twitter followership, though. So follow us there and make sure you're telling a friend to follow us there as well. Again, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Getting big numbers there. A lot of people enjoying that, so Go to youtube.com slash C slash Hazard Ground Podcast. That's the actual link. Or just go to YouTube, type in Hazard Ground Podcast in the search bar, and you'll find us there as well. On our website, hazardground.com, don't forget about our Amazon promotion. Go to the bottom of the homepage or click on the Sponsors tab. Take your rate to amazon.com. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. And once you do, we will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate that right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. And just one final note as we continue to go through what is very trying times in America as the coronavirus continues to sort of wreak havoc on society. It's my message. It's been my message from the beginning to all veterans. Continue to set the example. Continue to lead the way in doing all things that we need to do to bring people together and help us get past these trying times. And remember, while you're at it, these times are tough on everybody. Take these moments to reach out to a fellow veteran, somebody maybe you haven't seen or spoke to in a long time, and just check on them and see how they're doing. You know, we continue to hear about suicide and veterans and just what is continuing to be an awful, awful plague within our veterans community and our our service members community. Take that time to just reach out, email, text, whatever, social media. Go reach out to a fellow vet, check on them, see how they're doing, make sure that they are doing okay, check on their spirits. You never know. It could be that sort of connection that ultimately could save a life and save somebody from doing something that ultimately they will regret and obviously their family will be dealing with for years to come. So sort of build that bridge, be that person, and just reach out to a fellow vet, check on them, make sure that they are okay. And with all that out of the way, let's get on to another episode of The Hazard Ground. Joining us this week on the podcast is a former U.S. Army Staff Sergeant who is a Ranger and Green Beret, spent eight years in the military, multiple deployments overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. He left the Army to become a novelist and investigative journalist. His book is called Murphy's Law. He also hosts a podcast called The Team House. He is Jack Murphy joining us on The Hazard Ground Podcast. Jack, welcome, brother, man. Thanks for being here. Hey, Mark. I mean, thanks for having me on, man. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, A very interesting story that you have uh, in doing our research. Like we were talking about before we started recording, I stumbled upon your your Twitter account and just became really intrigued with some of the things that you had, you know, really strong opinions and sort of, you know, really pointed thoughts about things that are going on in the military world. And that always intrigues me because uh, you guys who have strong opinions, I think we need to hear more of those. You know, sometimes in the military, we're so conditioned to do things a certain way that we don't sort of be ourselves and give our own thoughts and own feelings. And I certainly appreciate that about the way you go about your business every day. Oh, sure. I mean, be careful what you wish for, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a point where maybe I'm too opinionated, but um, no, happy to, happy to share those things. And, you know, I continue to write about the military and veterans and things that are going on, world events. So, uh, yeah, happy to talk about all of that. All, right, all things we're certainly going to get to, but start back at the beginning for me. How and why did you get in the military? Well, uh, let's see. For me, I had always wanted to be in the military ever since I was a little kid, since I was like, you know, six or seven years old playing with G.I. Joe's. It was a lifelong ambition. 
And, um, you know, as I got older, uh, that didn't really go away. I still wanted to join the military. And, you know, I grew up in the 1990s for the most part. So it was a, a quote unquote peacetime military. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was actually contemplating uh, trying to join the French Foreign Legion because I figured that was the best way to actually get into the action. And, you know, that, that was for me, that's what it was about. I mean, I didn't want to join the military to um, just to train and just to hang out stateside. I was actually interested in experiencing war, uh, to be quite frank about it. And I grew up reading all of these books written by guys who are warps and rangers and uh, Green Berets in Vietnam. And that was the sort of experience I wanted to go and have. Um, but then in my, it was my senior year of high school, 9-11 happened and everything changed. So I joined the military uh, in 2002, right after I graduated high school. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of it for me. I came in on an option 40 contract, which puts you right into the uh, pipeline to uh, attempt to join the Ranger Regiment. When you were doing this, um, and you're going straight into com- knowing you're going straight into combat, what did your family say? Were they supportive of it? Yeah, yeah, my family was really supportive of it. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't say enthusiastic about it. Um, they had you know the normal trepidation that I think any parent would have about you know their kid going off to combat. Um, and I understand that better now that I'm a little bit older and I'm a father myself. Um, but they were always very supportive that they always put up with all my, uh, BS, uh, <laughs> you know, through and through. So, I mean, I was very fortunate. All right. So as you get this contract, and again, it's weird because back then it wasn't easy to go get those contracts, right? Like, I mean, as the war on terror went on, we needed more Rangers. We needed more special ops guys. Um, when you walked into the recruiter's office and said, I want to be a Ranger, did they give you any pushback or tell you you couldn't do it? How did that go? Um, it was interesting. I was actually one of those guys, my first inclination was to go and try to join the Marine Corps. And uh, I went in there, and they actually kind of gave me a runaround. Like, I walked into the office, and I said, hey, I want to be Marine Infantry. Sign me up. And they kind of screwed me around. I don't really know why, but they were kind of like, uh, you know, oh, we can give you infantry. We have a slot today. But if you wait until tomorrow, we won't have it anymore. And I kind of like, like, it felt like they were running some sort of scam on me. So I went down to, down to the... Uh, to the next office and I went and talked to the army and I said, Hey, uh, I want to be an army ranger. And they were like, sign on the side of the mind. Here you go, buddy. Wow. Really? It was that simple, huh? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, because I, I, I kind of knew what I wanted when I walked into the office and was able to tell them directly, Hey, I had a bad experience with the Marines. I want to be an airborne ranger. Can you put me into it? And, and yeah, they, they put it together real quick. Because you had done so much reading and had done so much sort of studying on, you know, Rangers and Green Berets and everything else, did you feel like you were more prepared for what you were about to walk into? I felt like I was more prepared. Uh, I'm not so sure that I was. Uh, I was still very naive. Um, but one of the big things was that all of the books I had read were about guys in the Vietnam conflict. So uh, back in those days, the Internet was still in its infancy. Uh, if you wanted to do some research, you had to go down to a library or a bookstore, and most of the books and most of the memoirs and nonfiction work about special operations was still about the Vietnam War. Uh, and there's very little out there about modern-day rangers except maybe Black Hawk Down, uh, and even that book was about 1993. Sure. Um, and when I got to Ranger Battalion in 2003, 
the the regiment was making a transition into really becoming a sort of modern-day counterterrorism force. Uh, so it was very different than what I had read about. All right, so you get through basic AIT. Uh, how quickly do you get to your unit and then the ranger school and, and so on and so forth? Kind of just take me through the timeline. I mean, it all happened relatively quickly. So I got to uh, third ranger battalion in the summer of 2003. Um, and then I was in the unit. I went to ranger school very quickly. Um, I was probably only in the unit for like four months or so. Graduated from ranger school in class 0404. So um, early 2004, I think it was February. Uh, graduate ranger school, then went over to the sniper section. They sent me to sniper school and then deployed to Afghanistan in the winter of 2004. All right, so this is before you go to Special Forces. Take me through that first deployment. Uh, You know, Afghanistan in 04, it was bad, but I don't know that it was at its height bad. So what was that first deployment like? What was your mission? What were you doing? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It wasn't that bad. It was kind of that interim period where the Taliban had been more or less defeated, but the insurgency had not really kicked into high gear. Right. Yeah. Um, so when I got there, our mission was to continue to um, fight whatever remnants there were of the Taliban, um, but also we were focused on degrading and defeating the Haqqani network, which was run out of Pakistan and still is to this day. Um, so we were doing, uh, you know, as a sniper and working with our, our recce unit, um, you know, the Ranger uh, Regiment stood up recce platoons in each battalion and it was their first deployment as a as a unit so i was attached to them and we were doing reconnaissance missions um and, but then the uh line guys we were with the rifle companies were also doing direct action missions which we supported um so it was not a, a super hot deployment um we definitely uh probably executed a couple dozen direct action raids um, but it wasn't, you know, some of the wildfire fights that, you know, kind of happened later on in the war. Uh, a lot of it was about, you know, interdicting stuff that was coming across the border from Pakistan. Um, there was a, uh, a series of, um, travel agencies that were issuing out fraudulent passports, uh, to people. Uh, we rounded up a Taliban intelligence officer who we later had to let go because of poor, uh, we didn't have, you know, strong enough intelligence, I guess, to hold him. Um, so there's things like that going on, but it wasn't like these huge battles. It wasn't some of the things that were happening later on in like 2008, 2009, sure. some of those big offensives. I remember being in Iraq in 05 to 06 and just hearing reports from Afghanistan and going, you know, kind of wish I was there because 05 and 06 in Iraq was the buildup to the, to the surge and the insurgency was at its height then. Um, and I, I just remember thinking how... Afghanistan almost seemed like a walk in the park compared to Iraq. And the only reason I bring that up is because you went back to Iraq, um, you know, a couple of years later. And we'll get to the details of that. But I'm just curious as far as the, you know, the kinetic operations that you were doing and sort of the tempo and the resistance of the enemy. How different was it in Iraq for you than Afghanistan? Oh, yeah, it it was very different. Um, So, you know, to, to your point, when I was in Afghanistan in 04 into 05, that was when Fallujah happened. Yeah. So like we were all we were all looking at what the Marines were doing in Iraq at that time. Like holy shit, that like that's where it's at. Like those guys kicked some ass. And, you know, we were all kind of like, damn, how'd we miss that? Um, you know, I, of course, you know, be careful what you wish for. I mean, that it was, it was uh, you know a, a mess over there. But um, 
for us, uh, we had time in between operations. The op tempo was relatively slow. We had time to plan operations, deliberately plan and execute missions. And, you know, they would come down to us once a week, once every two weeks. Um, so it wasn't super crazy. It, it was just a different time. Now, you mentioned that you were in Afghanistan in 04. Um, and, and I know you wrote about this, but I'm just kind of curious. Uh, you weren't there when Pat Tillman was killed, but you guys were actually in charge of going to get the guys who did it, or at least that were in that firefight, right? So kind of just take yeah. me through uh, a little bit of that. And, and you know, not, again, you didn't know Pat, but uh, sort of your relationship, you know, tangentially to him. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's accurate. I uh, I did not know Pat Tillman. I had crossed paths with him you know, you know, like going through the chow hall or something like that at some point, probably he was in pre-ranger. Um, but I did not know him. Um, and I was actually, um, backpacking in Costa Rica after I finished ranger school, I was down there backpacking around the jungle. I came into a small internet cafe and, and went to check my email and, uh, the front page story that pops up is that Pat Tillman had been killed in Afghanistan. Uh, so time goes by, you know, I got deployed to Afghanistan, um, later on, like I said, uh, late 2004. And one of the missions that came down to us was targeting the, uh, the Taliban target, the guy who they said planned the ambush that Pat Tillman was killed in. Now, Pat Tillman was ultimately killed in a, in a friendly fire incident. Did you know that at the time? Later. Uh, by that point, yet yeah, when I deployed, yes, I, we knew right. that. that now, was it like wasn't, public, that was public knowledge by then. It was public. Okay, I was going to say, I don't know if it was public by then because, you know, that was a, a several-month deal that went on that it was, oh, my God, yeah. he was killed, and, you know, here's a silver uh-huh. star, mm-hmm. and we're saying it was enemy, this, that, and the other. And, of course, we know, all know how it went down. We don't need to rehash it. But I was just curious, when you guys were going to get the guys, did you know at that point in time that it had been friendly fire? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We knew, uh, we knew that at that time, uh, they were even like our battalion commander or, or was it the regimental commander? They came down to talk to us and, and, you know, try to do like some damage control. Um, because it was starting to heat up in the press, you know, all yeah. that stuff that went down. But I was not at that time, I was a young ranger doing my job. Um, you know, as we all were, I think, and not particularly caught up in the politics um, you know, or, or the news cycle of what was going on at the time. Maybe I should have been, but, um, and they sent us on this operation first. To, it, was, it was me as a sniper and uh, a recce team. It was a small recce uh, team. It was like, you know, probably nine other guys, nine other Americans. And we went out to a place on the Pakistan border to do a reconnaissance operation to identify the compound that this guy was in and to do some pre-mission planning, like figure out, okay, where can we land helicopters? Where can we set the guys in? How can they make their way to the objective area? You know, that's sort of like pre-mission reconnaissance that has to happen. Um, that's what we were there for. And, uh, you know, in the, in the midst of that, you know, I don't know how in depth and how detailed you want to get into the whole, this whole story as much as you want to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, I I can definitely get into it. I mean, I, I, it's not something I enjoy talking about, but it's something I think that I have to talk about because there are young men and women out there still in uniform. And I think they need to hear some of this stuff and hopefully they can avoid some of the mistakes that I made. Um, and so to, to, to kind of start at the beginning, we went out that morning to recon this compound. Um, 
when we got to what's called the, the uh, what were we calling it at the time, the uh, mission support site, the MSS. So that's sort of like, you know, many of you have heard uh, from your military experience, the objective rally point, the ORP. Mm-hmm. It's just a place where you stop, you pull security, and it acts as like a temporary base that you can operate out of. So we stopped there with the vehicles. Um, we set up comms. And then there's a foot patrol. It was, let's see, six, seven, I think it was seven Americans for the recce patrol to leave the MSS to go out and take pictures of this compound, do what they need to do. They leave um, our position. And meanwhile, they, I, I was left at the MSS with uh, two other Americans. And part of our task while we were waiting was to identify some places where they could be helicopter landing zones. So we went around nearby. We were doing that. And then we got a message over the radio from the reconnaissance patrol that they had eyes on 10 enemy fighters, um, pretty heavily armed with rifles. It looked like one of them had a recoilless rifle. So we said, okay, we need to get back to the MSS right now because something serious is about to happen. We got to the MSS and we were having um, intermittent comms. Uh, you know, the communications were coming in garbled. They weren't coming in all the time. Um, but we still got the word, okay, these guys are coming towards your position. These 10 enemy fighters are coming towards your position. And what I did at that point was I decided that we needed to lay in a hasty near ambush on the road to get these guys before they walk into the MSS. So I rounded up the Afghans who are with us. There's maybe a dozen of them. And I took one other American with me. I left the camo guy at the MSS. We got in a couple pickup trucks. We drove perhaps a quarter mile down this dirt road. This is on a mountain ridge right near the Pakistan border. Uh, drove the vehicles up into a clearing area, and we moved into the wood line. Could the vehicles the even operate in that terrain? Like, what was that like? They were they were uh, Toyota Hiluxes. Okay. So, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because our vehicles, our uniforms, our headgear, our facial hair was all non-standard. We were disguised as uh, Afghan soldiers, Afghan paramilitary soldiers, actually. So we were not wearing American uniforms. We all had facial hair. We were wearing Pakal um, Afghan caps. Um, so we were not dressed like American soldiers wearing like body armor and helmets and all this sort of stuff that would help make you easily recognizable, right? Is that that hat that, that looks like it, you know, it has like a flat beret on top of it? Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the visual for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we were we were in disguise essentially. Um, and uh, when I, I got this ambush in, um, we were there in the prone position waiting. Um, you know, it's hard to judge time when you're in, in this sort of position. Sure. Uh, maybe like five minutes past. And we started to hear people. Um, we, it was footsteps. So somebody, you know, the the. Um, the hill we were on went down to the road and then it went back up, right? Back up a, a hill. And you could hear rocks at the top of that hill sliding and moving around as somebody was coming and walking down. And um, they walked right past what would have been the kill zone that I had identified on the road. So they were kind of walking right past our ambush um, and screwing up our plan. Uh, we could not really, I could not see them easily because of the trees that were obscuring the view. Um, when they finally did get down to about the road level, um, I was able to see one silhouette through my sniper rifle. Somebody passed right through my sniper scope, and it, it looks almost like a, a silhouette. It's like a, uh, it looks like you know you see the outline of the person wearing the Pakol hat. They have a chest rig on with some like ammunition in it. Looks like they're carrying a gun. 
um, they walked past uh, so quickly I couldn't get a beat on them. The second person passes into my sights. I get the crosshairs on them. I'm only going to have a split second to fire on them and initiate this ambush before they pass out of my view again. If I let them just walk past us, now they're going to walk right into our MSS where our teammate, that one American, the commo guy, I left him there with with like two uh, Afghanis. So it's now or never is I, I have to take action if I am. So I took the shot and I fired and uh, all hell broke loose on the side of that mountain that day. Um, there was gunfire just chewing up the tree that I was hiding behind. It was kicking up dirt into my eyes. I found out later on that a couple of grenades had gone off behind me. Um, it was, it was pandemonium and the Afghans were, um, squatting. They got up into the squatting position and they were firing their AK 47s on full auto. And there's just like expended brass going flying all around us. Uh, it, it was a chaotic scene. It really was <laughs> for anyone who's not been in an ambush with, uh, indigenous soldiers. It was pretty wild. Um, and after, you know, maybe 30 seconds of this firefight, one of the Afghans has his little walkie talkie and he starts jumping up and down and he's saying something like, no shoot, no shoot, no shoot, you know, in, in broken English. Eventually I got the gist of the idea. He was saying, stop shooting, you know, something's wrong here. Um, so we called ceasefire. Um, but we could not get comms up with anyone else, with any of our other elements. The other American with me, he had a uh, embitter, which is like a squad, yep. uh, a radio for inner squad communications or inner platoon communications. It doesn't have a very long range. We couldn't get anyone up on comms, but we know something's wrong. So now the question is, what do we do? How do we resolve this situation? And, you know, we, we spoke about, you know, my reading. And one of the things I had always read is, you never, ever stand up in an ambush. You stand up in an ambush, you get shot and killed. It's just something you don't do. And I went ahead and stood up in the middle of this ambush or, or the aftermath of it because somebody had to go down there and figure out what had just happened. Had we just ambushed a friendly Afghan force? Had we ambushed an American military unit that came into this AO without notifying us? Um, what just happened? So I got up and I walked down the hill to the road and I saw where some people were um, off of the side further on, you know, maybe 50 meters past the road. Or I, I should point back up just a second. As I walked down to the road and I arrived at the road, I came face to face with uh, one of my teammates who was on the recce patrol. His name's Paul. Really good guy. Paul's there, this big bushy beard, his Bacall cap. He, he looks at me and he says, Murph. And I look at him and I'm like, Paul? And we're, we're both just kind of, <laughs> I think, shocked. Like, what the fuck just happened? And it dawned on both of us in, in, in that moment, we had just had a friendly fire incident that we had just ambushed. I had just ambushed our own recce patrol. We walked into this this hasty ambush that I had established. Oh, wow. And so I walked down to where the other guys were. The recce patrol leader was on his knees. Um, it, it looked to me at first glance, it looked like he, he had his shirt off and one of the other recce guys was applying bandages. It, it, at first glance, it looked like he had been shot in between his shoulder blades. Like he, and I was like, oh my God, this guy's going to be dead in two seconds. Um, it turned out that it was a grazing wound, you know, kind of went side to side across his shoulder blades. It was a flesh wound. Um, and, uh, we called in a, uh, a medevac and he was medically, he, you know, he was evacuated, and the rest of us, we drove back down to the base that we were operating out of on the border. It was an Afghan border control point. 
And um, we sat down and did an after-action review to, and try to piece together all the things that happened and, and failed to happen and try to understand what we just experienced. And uh, Paul wrote it up into uh, into a report and he sent it up to hire. And, um, you know, I get in, in much more detailed, I guess, in the book as far as what happened, the, the circumstances leading up to it and all the details of it. But I think that gives you a, a broad overview uh, of how that incident happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, all I can say, it, it was a hair raising experience. And thankfully, you know, that, that squad leader, that, that, uh, that, um, team leader who had been shot and I'm a hundred percent sure I'm the one that shot him, that he's the person who walked into my sights the second in the order of movement that I shot at. I'm, I'm sure it was me. Um, he, he made a full recovery and he, he came back to work and, uh, and he was fine. So thankfully there was, uh, no fatalities amazingly during that incident. Okay, lots to unpack there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, as you tell the story, I'm sitting there thinking of what I would do if I was you behind the rifle, right? And instinct and training tell me exactly what you would have said. I would be thinking that if I let this second guy go, I'm screwing the one dude I left back there, and that's just yep. unacceptable. So you fire, and all hell breaks loose, and, and combat is chaotic, and coincidentally. You know, it, it was very similar to what happened with Pat Tillman, that they got disoriented in where they were going. Um, half of the platoon did and ended up driving into uh, where they were. So, but when the report was written up, were you ner- were you scared about what was going to happen in the report and what might happen to you? Yeah, of course I was. Um, that, that's just the blatantly honest um and selfish part of myself uh, that I, I was like, oh my God, I'm, uh, they're going to uh, chapter me out of the army or I'm going to be brought up on criminal charges. I'm going to be court-martialed. Uh, and, you know, th- that's all kind of um, silly in retrospect in the sense that we don't really court-martial ch- soldiers who make mistakes under combat conditions like that. Um, you know, that, that it's very rare that for something like that to happen. But, yeah, I mean, of course I, I was – worried about myself, um, you know, being a ranger and doing that job was, you know, the most important thing in my life uh, at that time. It was my whole identity. Um, and it was certainly, this was my first experience in combat. And I, I was, uh, I was ashamed and horrified by what I had done. And, um, I wanted another chance to prove myself, um, that I could do it. And, um, thankfully I was given it, um, which was, pretty unreal because the ranger regiment doesn't often offer people second chances. Sure. And I got one. It's interesting. You say that your first instinct was to want a second chance. And while I certainly understand it, I think the, the opposite of that, which many people would feel would be like, you know, I I think about me and I would be like, you know what? I I don't, I would question myself. I don't know if I'm cut out for like, it's natural to think that, Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. If I can't figure out what right's supposed to look like in combat, I may get somebody else hurt somewhere down the line. That thought ever cross your mind? I think that, you know, you have to take lessons learned from some of these things. And I I also think, uh, again, I I take full responsibility for what happened out there that day. And by the way, that is more than commendable. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but it is worth saying for the audience that there are a lot of people in our line of work when they make mistakes, quickly hustle to cover it up and make sure no one's looking. The, the, part of what our organization is about is that, that 
that honor and that respect and that those values that we hold to, to be able to sit there and tell the truth when it matters, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how ugly it is, that there are people that are willing to always do the right thing. And you should be commended for doing that because again, I think it's natural for people when they make a mistake of that nature to not want anybody to find out, but to raise your hand and go, Hey, that's me. That was on me. That's my fault. That's called leadership. That's what we expect of people in an organization. Yeah, you know, my uh, our officer, he flew out to the base that night and, um, you know, he asked me, you know, straight up, he said, you know, Earth, tell me what happened. And I told him, you know, the same story I just told you, essentially. And, you know, he asked me straight up, he said, OK, who shot the team leader? And I said, look, sir, I can't prove it to you because there's, you know, fog of war. I don't have a video recording of it. Um, but based on what I know. Um, I can tell you, I, I was me. I, I was the one who shot him, you know, and no one else, no one else pulled the trigger, but me, um, no one made that decision to lay in that ambush there, but me, uh, and there were, I was doing what I felt was best based on the information I had at that time. Um, you know, in retrospect, of course, there are a number of things I, I would do differently had I arrived in that situation again. Um, there are things looking back on it. I wish I had done differently. Um, but I was also operating under the various inputs that I had at that time. Um, and there are a number of things that I didn't know. Um, so I, I think it, it was something that, well, I would say, first off, you know, there's nothing in the Ranger tree that says you're allowed to quit. So that was one of the things that played into it, of course, for me. Um, but also on top of that, I knew that if I quit now, if I just threw in the towel and said, no, I can't do this. Like, I, 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 I you know, it, what would have happened is that incident would have defined my entire life. Sure. I would have lived with it forever. And I knew it was one of those things. Like I had to get back on the horse. And I had to go out and do it. And, you know, I, I just could not let it, you know, kind of own me and consume my life. I just couldn't let it be that thing. Did the guy that you end up shooting, or at least you presume you ended up shooting, did you talk with him? Yeah, yeah, I, I talked with him when I got back to uh, back to the states. And what was that conversation like? <laughs> it was it was brief and it was interesting. I, I went up to him and I shook his hand and uh, I said, "Hey, man, I'm glad to see you on your feet. I'm glad you're okay." And uh, he was kind of like, "Yeah, yeah," you know. It was uh, I don't know if he's bitter or angry with me, and I would not blame him at all if he was. Um. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. You got to look the guy in the eye like a man and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you're okay. Interesting stuff. You mentioned that there were things that you would have done differently, um, given, you know, the information that you knew at the time. With hindsight being 2020, just give me an example of something you would have done differently. Yeah, absolutely. So this is like, first and foremost, what should have happened is, uh, one of the reasons why this incident happened was that we just had too many moving elements out there at once. We had the MSS out there. We had the recce patrol out there. And then we had me out there playing Johnny Rico, uh, throwing up a hasty ambush on the road. So now you have three elements out there and none of them know where each other are. Right. So think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. None yeah. of those elements know where the other two elements really are, except while well, the MSS was pretty much stationary. But the other elements don't, you know, the recce patrol did not even know I was out there because of the bad communications. Right. Um, the recce patrol took like two hours to get out to where they were going. 
because they hadn't, they'd never been there before. But when they decided to come back, it only took them 15 minutes to walk back to the MSS. Well, okay. And I would add in that, that the terrain in and of itself, and for people who haven't been to Afghanistan and people who have been there know this, the terrain is so untenable and it's, and it can disorient the hell out of the best land navigators. Uh, and, and that's the one advantage that the Taliban always have. They've been living there for yeah. hundreds of years. They know the terrain. They don't need, you know, a building or a stop sign or a stoplight or whatever it is to tell them where they are. They know by the trees and the angle of the hill and the reflection of the sun. I mean, they've been living that way for 2000 years, so they know it better than we do. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, w- I would just say, like, for an a- a AAR comment for anyone else listening to this, and, you know, hopefully they already know this, but if they don't, when you arrive in that situation where somebody gets eyes on a enemy element moving around in your AO and it's decided that they need to be attacked, the other moving elements need to just hunker down, stay where they are, and pull security. Um, now, I'm not saying which element in this particular case should have been, you know, the, the maneuver element, so to speak. Um, but either we should have waited in place in the MSS while the recce patrol engaged, or the recce patrol should have stayed in place while I went out and engaged with my element. Um, but now when you have two, two elements out there maneuvering around, not knowing where each other are, where each other are geographically, and you're also disguised like Afghanis, that's just a recipe for disaster. Wow. I'll ask one more thing on this. How much does it still stay with you? How much does, is there any sort of negative, you know, repercussions, PTSD, whatever the term you want to use? How do you reconcile all of that? Well, yeah, it, it did stick with me for a while. I mean, it was a shameful incident. It was, it was a horrifying incident. It, it was about as embarrassing as, anything you could possibly imagine it. Uh, I mean, a friendly fire incident, it, it, it just is unprofessional and incompetent. And, uh, I felt horrible about it. Um, I think staying in the military and I think staying on and continuing to do my job. And I'm forever thankful to the Ranger regiment for allowing me to do that. I think that really helped me get over it. Um, I don't, I think I have any kind of like PTSD over it. I think I did kind of reconcile it in my mind um, and was able to move on from it. Um, and, and I think that's also largely because, you know, no one was killed or seriously hurt during the incident. You know, if, if somebody had been killed, I, I would not have been able to forgive myself or something like that. I mean, how much does that thought creep into your head that, you know, you it, were that close to killing somebody? It definitely crosses my mind. Um, and it's something, you know, I, I think about that moment when I pulled the trigger and had I had a slightly better sight picture, had the terrain been a little bit easier to manage, had they walked into my kill zone instead of walking around it, everything could have been different. Now, on the flip side, what if the enemy, what if that 10, 10 man enemy patrol walked into my kill zone? And I ambushed them with the with the Afghans and with this other American soldier, and we killed all of them. They would have been pinning a silver star on my chest when we got home. <laughs> yeah. No, really. I mean, no, you're uh, right. It, I mean, the, the, it's it's that Mighty Ducks analogy. You ever see the movie The Mighty Ducks? When when uh, yeah yeah, Gordon Bombay's talking about you know a half inch the other way, and I would have been the hero. And the, and Charlie Comer says, "Well, half inch the other way, you would have missed completely." And he goes, "Well, I never thought about it that way." I mean, it, it's it's that sort of dichotomy, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Um, that deployment, uh, any, anything else significant? Did you lose anybody on that deployment? Uh, yeah, we did, unfortunately. Uh, Sergeant Edmondson um, was killed in a vehicle rollover. Um, it was really sad. We were uh, driving out to establish a patrol base. Uh, I was there, of course, as a sniper um, with guys from Charlie Company, a platoon from Charlie Company, um, 3rd Ranger Battalion. And we were driving out to set up a patrol base on the Afghan, or I'm sorry, on the Afghan-Pakistan border. Um, and, um, you know, the vehicle in front of his kicked up a lot of dust. They went around a turn. You know, you mentioned the terrain in Afghanistan. I mean, those roads are very treacherous. Um, it's very dangerous. And we often drove at night, you know, blacked out under knots and everything else. And um, because of the dust and the turn, I think the driver did not see um, – that turn did not see the road very well. The vehicle rolled over and rolled down an embankment. And um, Edmondson was the uh, was the 50 cal gunner in that vehicle. Um, so he was, you know, standing up in the turret. turret and he was, you know, rolled over and killed. Um, so it was, uh, it was sad. And he was a uh, he was a member of the mortar section. And you know, those guys were definitely tore up about losing him. I mean, we all were. You know, I remember the Charlie Company commander just kind of being like in a daze when we got to the patrol base that day. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way to put like a positive spin on it. You know, you, you hate to lose somebody like that. No, absolutely. Okay. So that deployment ends, what happens next? And ultimately how do you end up uh, becoming a green beret? Yeah. So, um, you know, I deployed again to, or I deployed to Iraq, uh, you know, the next rotation with uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion um, deployed with Weapons Squad, 1st Platoon, Alpha Company, and 3rd Ranger Battalion. And uh, we were in Mosul, and that was a very hot deployment. Uh, we were what, doing year, what year was this? This was 2005, that okay. summer. And right, so we, we, were doing time we were there at the same time, just in a different location. Yeah, we were, we were doing time-sensitive targets at that point, um, you know, several operations during each period of darkness. And then, you know, we ended up doing operations during the day as well. So it was like 24 hours on 24 hours off. And it was just a, a summer of insanity. Um, but I was also had this idea about, about going to special forces in the back of my mind. Um, largely, I think because of some of the SF guys I had met uh, in ranger school in uh, doing shooting competitions and things like that, I had met, you know, green berets. And, uh, as much as I love the Ranger regiment, it is very regimented. Um, you know, they're like stickler for the rules and the uniforms and the haircuts and all that kind of <laughs> stuff that, you know, quite frankly, I, I didn't really care about that much. Um, you know, as I said to someone recently, you know, Ranger battalion is a great, it's a great place to grow up. It's the best place to grow up really, but it's not really the place you want to grow old. It's like at a certain point, you know, you want to go to a more mature environment. You don't really want mm -hmm. to be like, you know, just yelling at some private because he's wearing the wrong color socks. It's like, eh, is that really what I want to do, you know, in the, in the army? Um, so when I came back from that deployment to Iraq, uh, I went to SFAS. Uh, I think it was the last SFAS they ran in 2005. Went through, got selected. Um came back and uh, continued to be a team leader in Ranger Battalion up until I left for the Q course, um, which would have been 2006. 
So I you know, went to Bragg, uh, went to the Q course, and uh, I was an 18 Bravo, a weapons sergeant, graduated in 2007, and uh, got assigned to 5th Special Forces Group at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I'll say this much. Uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And as somebody who still wears a uniform after 20 years, um, I, I find the fanaticism over those small little things, well, I get it in the big picture, and as you said, it makes sense in raising young soldiers, but it also instills which a, a bigger problem of micromanaging and babysitting. And I think that's one of the biggest things that plagues the Army and the military in general, that we have we have micromanaged and babysat people so much that they are afraid and don't know how to act on their own. And that creates yeah. a void in leaders, which is a massive problem as this organization turns into a different generation of soldiers who are coming in who are growing up in completely different environments and circumstances than the ones we grew up in. You and I aren't that far apart in age. You know, as you said, you know, we learned about the Internet because we lived through the beginning of it. These kids who are coming into the military now have had the Internet forever. It's the only thing they've ever known. And so, um, you know, I used to get yelled at all the time in active duty, by the way, for my sideburns being too long. That was my fascist stand. I felt like I don't give a shit. I'm like, I'm just going to have my sideburns the way I want them. I don't care what you guys say. I got yelled at routinely as a lieutenant all the time, told to go home and shave them, this, that, and the other. I'm like, fine, whatever. Um, but I'm with you. I, I think there's a place for that stuff. And, and the way you said it, I would say that, you know, that's a way to grow up, but it's not the way to be an adult, if that makes sense, right? right. Like, right. It, it, once you become an adult, you, you, you have to instill those things in younger people, but you don't have to instill those things in your peers and other adults. You allow them the freedom to be adults. And it's just, you know, I, 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 I think it's kind of refreshing that you had that point of view. But um, as we sit here now yeah. in the middle of the coronavirus watching Marines have to go get haircuts, which may be the most <laughs> asinine thing we've seen in the yeah. world as of late. Well, you know, it, it's true of the Army in general, I think, but the Ranger Regiment in, in particular is that they keep you in a very infantile state. Yes. Um, with that sort of micromanaging. And then, yeah, is it any real surprise that, you know, you micromanage the hell out of these guys, that they're they're used to always being told what to do, having a team leader up their ass 24-7, and then you just cut them loose for a three-day weekend on the civilian population, and then the sergeant major has to pretend like he's surprised when the unit has a dozen DUIs. But of course they do. How could they not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, betray, you treat them like little babies. And then you just set them loose on the world and like, what you think everything's going to be okay. And that plays into other things, you know, in a bigger picture, uh, you know, when guys get out of the military and you hear about, you know, veterans having trouble transitioning. Well, why is that? Because no one in the civilian world tells them what to do all day long. Right. Right. It, it, it's, it's a whole different discussion that we could probably do a whole nother podcast on to say the least. But, um, you know, and that's one thing that I, I was fortunate enough um, when I deployed, you know, attached to the, to the SF guys that it was an environment I knew I was meant to be in and, and had somebody told me earlier in my career about, you know, special forces and what it was about and how, you know, they encourage thinking and they want people who, you know, can actually make decisions for themselves and take initiative and things of that nature and not have to, you know, look for approval from people. Like I, I thrive in those environments personally. So it's one of the things that I was very fortunate with that walking into that, that, that community you were judged on the job you did and it didn't really matter the little things like, you know, if I was gone 23 hours a day, no one cared. If in the one hour that I was there, everything got done that needed to get done. No one babysat you. No one cared, you know, and to me that that, that sort of autonomy, I think, is important. Um, and, and it allows for a, a different level of thinking and and sort of, uh, you know, initiative that you don't get in the regular army. 
Yeah, on the on the ODA level, that's absolutely true. I mean, my team sergeant was not hand holding, you know, was not like trying to supervise me like a squad leader. And actually, one of the things I really, you know, am grateful to him for is that he had the opportunity to make mistakes. Like, there were some times I remember even like training Iraqis where he was like, you know, Jack, like that's not really a great idea. And I was like, oh, but Jeremy, you don't understand, you know. And he's like, okay, go ahead and try it your way, Jack. <laughs> and I go and do it and be a big mess. Like, yeah, I get to right here. <laughs> so, I mean, he gave me some of those opportunities to learn, right? To, to make those mistakes on my own and learn from them as opposed to being micromanaged all the time. And, uh, you know, that, that, that is a great thing about the OTA level. Now, if you get to like an SF company and battalion level, oh my God, it's just as bad as Ranger Battalion. It really is. But uh, when an OTA is out there deployed into the world, there's just this sort of like culture of like, okay, there's only 12 of us out here. Everyone has to do their job. And there just isn't time for that kind of like handholding. You know, you, you have to you have to man up. Um, one of the old school cats uh, who's a civilian worker at Fifth Group, you know, he told me one time, he's like, you know, if you take a boy and you treat him like a man, he has to man up. But unfortunately, I think what he felt the organization is doing in a lot of ways is taking men and treating them like boys. And then, and at that point, they kind of dumbed down. Um, and it's just one of the cultural problems that the military has. Yeah, and it's something, as a battalion commander, I, I screamed at my company commanders for when it came to lieutenants. Stop treating them like they're privates and stop giving them menial jobs to do. Start giving them the toughest jobs possible. Teach them how to do your job because that's the only way they're going to learn. I've said repeatedly, right. if you need to teach a lieutenant how to be a platoon leader, their previous chain of command failed them. Their ROTC or, or West Point or OCS, they, they failed them. Your job isn't to continue to fail them. It's to just move them along and teach them to do the next job. Everybody should be working, training to do the next job that they have, not the one that they're in. Because if you have to learn the job that you're in, you shouldn't be in that job. Like our organization thrives on people who are looking forward, not people who are standing still. Yeah. And I, I hate how in the military, everything has to be basic. Like they always emphasize, Oh, the basics, you got to learn the basics. Everything has to be basic. Like if you can't, if you take just even like grunts, like infantry soldiers and you teach them quote unquote advanced tactics and you just don't tell them it's advanced, just don't use that word advanced, just get rid of it and just teach them that stuff. You'll be amazed at what they can do. Yeah, and and that's the problem sometimes. I think everybody assumes that people who are less of rank or lesser experience aren't capable of doing what they're able to do, right? Because well, they they just haven't been here long enough. Which again, stop stop telling them they can't do it. Exactly. And you said the key thing before was <laughs> allow people to make mistakes. Look, if it's not going to get anybody killed, it's not illegal, moral, and ethical. Let people yeah, screw yeah. up because we have time to fix it. It's one thing to say I'm not. I don't want this person to do this in combat because people's lie. That's one thing. But when you're home and you're in garrison and you're training environment, let them make all the damn mistakes they want that's what it's there for like that's that's what the definition of training is yeah absolutely all right so let's get back to you for a moment here you end up uh going to fifth group what happens next you deploy again to iraq correct yeah yeah i got assigned to uh oda 5414 we were uh part of the expansion battalion so when after 9 11 and don rumsfeld decided that we needed more green berets we needed more sf units um each group SF group added a fourth battalion, um, you know, and I ended up in fifth group's fourth battalion. So I was on the Halo team uh, there, and we uh, we did the whole train up. We stood up that team from scratch. Uh, you know, me and my teammates. 
I was the first senior 18 Bravo on the team. And um, we then deployed to uh, Talafer, Iraq, which was actually right next door to where I had deployed in Iraq with Ranger Battalion in Mosul. And we had been back in 05, we were doing ops in the Talafer all the time. So I was going right back to the same area, really. From a standpoint of operations, I know we touched on this before, but uh, the fighters in Iraq, more violent, more aggressive, more tactically based. Uh, how would you describe them? I mean, more more aggressive. I mean, in 05, there were just tons and tons of foreign fighters. Um, you know, they were they were absolutely happy to use suicide attacks and things like that. Um, but one, one of the great things about being in a, in a special operations unit is we're always on the offense. Uh, we were never really waiting around for them to hit us. Um, we drove tactically. We drove at night with our lights blacked out. Um, you know, we, we creep up on targets as silently as possible. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the boys would blow down the door or, or even just break down the door very quietly and go in, clearing the compound under nods and literally pull these guys out of bed in their sleep. So um, we were very fortunate. I was very fortunate that I served in units that were tactically proficient. And, you know, a couple of times where the bad guys tried to sneak up on us and get the drop on us, you know, we already had snipers in Overwatch. And, you know, snipers would just pop their grapes before they even had the opportunity to shoot at us. So um, we definitely got into some firefights back in those days. But, you know, again, I was fortunate to serve with, you know, some really competent people. Um, 2000 in, uh, 2009, going back to Iraq, it was, again, it was kind of like night and day. Um, Telafar had been, you know, a terrorist safe haven in 2005. In 2009, it had been relatively pacified, and we were able to, you know, walk around the market uh, with just a pistol on our hip, um, which is a little surreal. Uh, it's just totally a totally different experience. Yeah, kind of similar to what you talked about with the with the Vietnam conflict. Guys were able to walk out through town. Um, I never got that experience in Baghdad either time that I was there, but uh, I feel like sometimes it would have been nice to have done. You know, it sort of almost gives you a little bit of normalcy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, of course, making runs up to Kurdistan and all that good stuff. Uh, it was a it was a low level counterinsurgency environment. There was definitely a threat there. We were definitely. Um, doing high-value target capture-kill missions um, while we were there, our ODA was. Um, but we were also doing, you know, working with the civil affairs guys and doing different civil projects. Hearts and minds, baby, you know, hearts and minds. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Um, <laughs> and it was it was a cool deployment in that sense to kind of get the SF experience because I had a uh, Iraqi SWAT team that I trained and was kind of the notional company commander of. Um, you know, and I was, again, I was fortunate that I inherited that SWAT team from other ODAs who had worked with them extensively and trained them and everything else. So I, I walked into a very good situation because of them. And, uh, and overall, you know, a, a good experience, a very frustrating experience dealing with the, both the Iraqi and the American bureaucracies. Um, but a, a good experience for, you know, a young Green Beret, I think. As far as the operations that you did, I know you've written on this subject, so I'm curious to just hear you talk about it. But the idea of direct action, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, uh, particularly in the in the soft community, uh, how has that morphed and changed? I mean, again, I know you came into it as you talk about uh, sort of the morphing process of what special forces has become. But um, 
direct action in Afghanistan versus Iraq. How is it different? Can you compare the two? Is are they the same given the difference in the terrain and, and urban environment? Um, very different. Uh, I think, you know, it would be great, you know, to have that conversation with guys who served more extensively in Afghanistan more recently. Um, but I mean, just, you know, what I do know about it, you know, the guys in Afghanistan are operating more in a rural environment. Um, they're having to negotiate, you know, the mountains, they're having to work in the, you know, the farms and these wide open areas. They're doing much longer, um, foot movements. In Iraq, we were operating in, you know, a relatively cosmopolitan environment, you, you know, these dense city centers, um, you know, we were kind of, it, it was, a, it, they were counterterrorism missions, but it was more like, you know, we were like a high speed SWAT team in a lot of ways. Um, but again, it was not a, uh, it was a semi permissive environment. You're still working in a war zone and you have to deal with, you know, IEDs and, you know, the, the Iraqi police commander, you know, trying to sell you out and all that other kind of crazy stuff that goes along with it. But uh, overall, yeah, two different types of warfare, I think. All right. So that deployment finishes. Uh, when does it finish? And uh, do you have, is it one more under your belt? Uh, the, the 2009 deployment was my last one. Was your last one. Okay. So that leads me to the, you know, you had talked about reading up on these books on Green Berets and Rangers and everything else. As a young kid, you had finally reached, uh, that part of your career, but yet you decide to get out of the military. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Um, disappointment, honestly. Um, on what level? Personally and professionally, uh, I, I had not, I, I mean, on, on one level, you know, some of these things we've been talking about, I did find what I was looking for. Um, but also just a lot of frustration with how we were prosecuting the war um, and just that, that totally ass backwards approach to it, um, which is a, a huge whole subject in of itself. But it, mm -hmm. I, it was like, you know, I mean, I think everyone, all of us experienced it, right? It, it was like, we weren't serious about winning. Like, why are we here? Like, like are we just deploying, uh, you know, to mark time to like have warm bodies filling slots or like, are we serious about, you know, making a difference here in, in, you know, winning this conflict? I, uh, I think that because of the special operations task force and, you know, I, I don't mean to put everything on soft. I mean, also the conventional military guys and the surge and everything else that happened over there, um, you know, the enemy was really put on its heels in 2008, 2009, 2010 in Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, they had created an opening because they had just worn down what we call AQI. We had just worn them down so much. Um, and that would have been that opportunity to really stand up the institutions of government in Iraq. Um, and, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, and now a lot of that is also on the Iraqi government, on GOI. And they were as incompetent and as corrupt as anyone can possibly imagine. Um, so part of it is on them as well. Um, but I, I guess the the way to just sum it up, because I could talk about this and, and you know, whine about it all day. But um, what it comes down to is I realized at a certain point I could go into work and I could give 110 percent or I could just not come into work at all. I could just stay in my bed and not go in. And it would be almost the exact same effect. Yeah. Because all of the decisions had already been made for us. Um, 
we we had no agency. We we would never really experience the exhilaration of real leadership um, because all of those decisions were made way above our heads. And you have these colonels and generals that are just trying to run the entire war by email from fucking McDill down in Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it just gets to the point, like, why am I here? Like, and why, you know, why are my teammates here? Why are they risking their lives? Um, but when it comes to getting out of the military, you know, each man has to make their own decisions. And um, I, I just decided that, you know, I I couldn't do it. It was like a conscience, uh, a conscious issue. Sure. Um you, you know, that you, you just feel like this isn't right. Like it's immoral and it's unethical to wage a war like this, to just keep deploying soldiers without any sort of strategic end game in, in sight or in mind. I'll share two quick anecdotes, if I may. I, I had yeah. the same thought during my first deployment. And again, the first deployment I've, I've said repeatedly to guests in the podcast, it was the highlight of my career. Again, you and I talked a little bit about it before recording. I just got to do things I never thought I'd do, and uh, I was very fortunate in that aspect. But I remember sitting down with a major at one point, and I was a captain, and I had this conversation. I said, we're never going to win this thing. Like, I, what we're doing every day, it, it's good work, and it's, it's you know, salt of the earth kind of work, and we're making Iraqi soldiers better, but we're never going to win this thing. And the major looked back at me and said, Mark, small victories. You have to take the small victories when you can get them, and that's the only way you're going to survive this thing because you're not going to win the whole war yourself, right? And, and you can't. And so oh, yeah. oh, that, yeah. that stayed with me enough to kind of, you know, keep the thoughts that you had, that I had as well, at bay just to keep me alive, right? Um, and then my second deployment, I was there for the closeout of Iraq in 2011 and we went there to leave, which was asinine because we didn't do anything. We sat on our ass. We got mortared like crazy. We had no really offensive kinetic operations to talk about. And we were just counting down days to get the hell out of there. And I had a conversation with somebody once that they explained to me, and I thought this was the perfect analogy. They talk about the term whole velocity. When you make a boat, how you, how you design the hull will determine how fast the boat can go. Right, it'll hit whole velocity. Well, we hit whole velocity, as you said, in about two thousand eight, two thousand nine in Iraq. That was the best it was ever going to get. And every point yep, yep. after that, it was all downhill, and there was no reason for us to be there. And nobody, and I mean nobody in our government, was smart enough to say, you know what, pull the plug on this damn thing and get the hell out of Dodge, because you know government. But you know that's th- those are the two things when it talks the big picture stuff that always have stayed with me. Well, that and we were cooking the books. Oh sure, yeah. Uh, you know, a command a command decision had been made, and now all of these younger officers, junior officers, were under pressure to send up false reports saying that everything was all you know peaches and cream in Iraq, and that the government was ready to function on its own when it wasn't. It wasn't at all. And you know, the proof is that after we left, what happened? ISIS came to town. Yep. And those Iraqi soldiers, a lot of them, threw down their guns and just disappeared. Incredible stuff. All right, you, like you and, said, you know, when you say when you talk about small victories, you know, I uh, I'm on board for that, you know. And if the if the strategic picture was, hey, listen, we're going to stay in Afghanistan, we're going to stay in Iraq for the next 50 years, and we're going to reshape this entire culture and country and economy and everything, and you know, you're going to be deployed there for you know six months or a year at a time, and your your job is just to move the football one yard closer to the end zone. You know, like you said, small victories. And, you know, you're going to go over there and you're going to do the Lawrence of Arabia thing and, you know, integrate with the population. And you're just going to try to, you know, tilt the needle a little bit, right? I would have been okay with that. 
because at least there is a strategic end state in mind and, and there is a plan that you're working towards. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I agree wholeheartedly on it. Um, yeah. I, the conversation of the, the validity of the war in Iraq and the, even the war in Afghanistan to a certain extent is a podcast in and of itself. And I would love to dive into <laughs> yeah. it more with you, but uh, you know, again, uh, it's, that's not your personal story. That's just two guys who uh, have different experiences sharing them in the big picture. But that said, sure. You get out and and you make the transition to to author and journalist. Um, was this intentional or did you sort of stumble upon it? No, I stumbled upon it. <laughs> it was uh, I don't know a, a, an extension of my curiosity and my need to continue to you know pick at things and investigate them and try to understand them. And I, I think it's also part of it is also trying to come to terms or to try to understand your own experiences and more. I think. Uh, you know, a lot of guys after Vietnam, they came home and, and they got um, their PhDs in, you know, like East Asian studies uh, or something like that to try to, I think, understand what they had gone through as young men in the war. And this was sort of my version of doing the same thing that I kind of kept one hand in it or psychologically, I, I kind of kept my mind somewhat in it and to try to understand war and you know, I, I think somewhere there's a part of my personality that thought I'd be able to conquer it, that, you know, through through knowledge, I could conquer it. I could crack the code, right? Like I could discover the life hack. And, uh, you know, of course, that's all, you know, quite naive and that's not how the world works. But I, I think that's probably initially why I obsessed over some of these things and, and just would not let them go. What was the impetus for writing your book? Uh, a couple of things. I mean, one of them was that, you know, it was the book that publishers kept asking me for. I would pitch them all of these like really cool ideas like, hey, why don't I write about mercenaries in Syria or, you know, Nigeria or Ukraine or something like this? They're like, no, no, no. The only book they wanted was a memoir. And uh, for years, I, I, I just fought them off. I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And uh, I was sitting down in this uh, crappy Mexican restaurant in Manhattan with a, a friend of mine, uh, Jim West, who's a retired 7th Special Forces Group warrant officer. And uh, I was talking to him about some of these things. And he told me, he was like, you know what that is, Jack? That's the PTSD. That's you trying to avoid it. Because what I, what I had told him was, I was like, you know, it's funny that as a writer, I've written everyone else's story but mine. Like all the people around me, I've written their stories. I, I go and track people down and I write about their story. All these veterans from all these different conflicts. But the one story that I never wrote was my own. And, you know, when Jim told me that, that I was avoiding the issue, it really made me think um, that, that in some way it was almost like it was like cowardly of me to go around and ask so many different veterans to like spill their guts to me and tell me their story. And I, and I like, Hey guy, like, give it to me straight. Tell me, I want the truth. Right. And it's kind of cowardly of me to demand that of so many people that I, that I've talked to that I've interviewed, but at the same time, here I am holding all this stuff inside and I'm not wanting to talk about the things that I experienced and that I went through. And at that point, you know, I almost feel like, like it's an integrity issue for me, you know? No, I mean, again, I, I think that's fair. Um, I would tell you, too, as well, that uh, um, I, I, in doing this, this podcast, you know, it's funny that 
one thing we get from listeners a lot is, well, Mark, what's your story? And I'm like, I don't want to tell it. I don't think anybody cares. You know, like it's, it's, I, I don't think I'm necessarily running from it or, or there's any, you know, uh, big level of, of PTS behind it per se, but I, it's just, I'd rather talk about somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Like I'd rather tell somebody else's yeah, story yeah. than my own. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, um, I, I can empathize a little bit of, of what you were feeling at least, um, in doing it. Was there any catharsis in writing the book for you? Mm. I guess to some extent, you know, putting things on paper kind of lets you, you know, put them out there and really look at them in their totality and really think about what you've been through and process it. Um, I don't think it, was, it wasn't like a, a major catharsis because because of what I do inevitably, you know, people ask me about it and I end up talking about it, but I still think it was, I still think it was a very positive experience and seeing the way other people have connected with the book and, and taken away something positive from it. And I hope, you know, as we said in the beginning of this interview, you know, I hope that they learn from some of the mistakes I made. Um, yeah, I, I think it's been a really positive experience overall. What was the reason for going back to school? Um, well, so I had made the decision to leave the military and at least, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I'm putting that totally behind me. I'm done with it. The, you know, the hell with the army, that part of my life is over. And so now the thing is, you know, I, I also, my, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant. So it's like a major transition in my life. Right. So now I, I have the GI bill and I have to make this transition into civilian life. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of as simple as that. It, it was like just, you know, Darwinism. What do I have to do to survive? And, uh, and you know, having a college degree is a huge leg up. And, um, and, you know, as a veteran, you have a lot of benefits that you can take advantage of. So um, I, I think that any of us who get out of the military, if we don't take advantage of that, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. What's more challenging to you, being a Green Beret or being an author or a journalist? Man, they're different. They're very different because, uh, you know, being a Green Beret is like the most popular job in America, the most loved job in America. Being a journalist is the most hated job in America. <laughs> like, well, I would talk about going from hero to zero. Right. <laughs> um, they're, they're different. I think, that, you know, being inquisitive and being uh, somebody who asks the right questions and is detail oriented. Um, and, you know, we'll leave no stone unturned. I think those are kinds of qualities that can help you out, um, whether you're a Green Beret or a journalist. And there are, there are actually quite a few um, crossover skill sets, I think, between an investigative journalist and a Green Beret or even somebody like a CIA uh, case officer, you know, that you, you are in, on some level an investigator, that you have to go places and understand people and ask questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, What's challenging, I, I think that, you know, being a, a special forces soldier, you have to have a tremendous amount of um, physical and moral and ethical courage to do your job. Um, you, you literally have to face down death. You know, today's special forces soldiers are in combat all the time. Um, as a journalist, it's, it's a sort of different type of death that you could face. It's like a... Um, how to describe it. It's like a, I don't want to say it's like an ego death. I mean, if it becomes that, it's really, it's really just a narcissistic sort of thing. Um, 
but there is a certain amount of like risk in it that you are searching for things that some people would rather not have uncovered. And, um, there is a, there is a spike of adrenaline that goes up when you're really onto a exciting story. Do you get the same level of satisfaction out of being a writer or journalist as you did as being a Green Beret? In different ways, um, you know, as a journalist, I, I've gotten to do things that the Army would never, ever let me do. So, for instance, I was smuggled into Syria with the Kurds in 2014. Um, I went into battle with the Peshmerga um, as an embedded journalist in 2015. Uh, I went to Damascus, Syria, in the middle of the Civil War, and I interviewed President Assad um, I've been to the Philippines covering Philippine special operations units. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, I did training exercises with the Swiss militia up in the mountains of Switzerland. Um, so I've had these experiences. I've been able to go thing, go places and do things and talk to people that the army would absolutely go bonkers if you even proposed. Um, so I, I have derived a lot of satisfaction from it, um, from, from being a journalist. And I think that even the process of investigating and discovering things and uncovering things is, uh, it is satisfying. And I think it's important work. I, um, you know, I, although we have this, uh, kind of conversation about the role of, of journalism today, and it's an important conversation to have, um, Despite, you know, all the, the those kinds of uh, controversies, I do think it's an important job and I do derive satisfaction from it. But at the same time, you know, being a, uh, a young ranger, a young Green Beret, I mean, those experiences kind of set me up for success in life in so many ways. Tell me about the podcast, Team House. How did that start? What's it all about? Yeah, um, so it, I think that was just sort of a natural outgrowth of the, of the journalistic work that I do. Um, it, it's a weekly podcast and you know, it's a live stream that I do live every Friday night at 8 p.m. with a friend of mine who's also a former ranger. And we interview people from the intelligence community and special operations. So, you know, Green Berets, Delta operators, CIA officers, um, very much, you know, kind of in that military, paramilitary world. Um, and uh, we're, we're young so to speak. We're new. Uh, we've only been around for a few months, but we're growing. And, you know, it's one of the most exciting things that uh, I do every week. I really enjoy doing it. I really enjoy talking to these people and meeting these people and hearing their stories. You know, you, you know the deal. I mean, you're a sure, podcast yeah. host. So. No, I, and again, I think it's one of those things where we're after the same sort of thing, you know, to, to get people's stories. I mean, ours isn't as uh, narrow as the as the soft community, uh, we, we talk to everybody because I think, sure. you know, the impetus of this podcast was basically the one line sentences, you know, the story of lone survivor and American sniper because they were books that were made to movies. Well, everybody's got a story, but not everybody has their story made into a movie. And to hear these firsthand accounts, um, is something that I think is really important to tell for a lot of individual people. But, you know, somebody said to me, and I thought it was one of the nicest compliments that we've ever gotten was that, you know, we're chronicling history with this podcast. You know, we, we, are, mm -hmm. we are telling stories 
that may be forgotten 50 years from now because no one bothered to ask anybody. Um, and we look at the, the World War II guys, the greatest generation now, right? We're thirsting for knowledge about that because they're all dying off and we don't have any yeah. more of those people. So, you know, while the internet will be in full bloom forever, hopefully, you know, both of our podcasts will continue to tell stories um, that maybe not, not a lot of people ever heard because, again, nobody wrote it into a book and nobody made it into a movie. No, that that's perfectly said, and uh, that is uh, that is absolutely the the perspective I come from. And you know, I'm happy to interview somebody who you know got to write a book and tell their story. But as you said, not everyone has that opportunity. You know, I was very fortunate. Uh, what I love the most is finding those people who have never told their story before. They've never been interviewed. Um, they have all of this like living history inside of themselves and, you know, to sit down and to be the first person to really, to get them to open up to, um, is incredible. I mean, that's really a privilege. And, you know, over the years I've, I mean, I've talked to people who told me things they haven't talked about in 50 years, you know, that they experienced in the war in Vietnam and just put away. And well, I mean, you know, I mean, when, when they're selling it to you straight, you can hear it in their voice, you know? Absolutely. You yeah. touched on something that, that I think when I do the podcast, when we do Hazard Ground and we talk to people, when they say to me, you know, I've never told that story before, that's when I know I, I've hit the sweet spot, man. Like that yep. is the home yep. run I'm looking for in yep. every single interview <laughs> that I'm doing. Is they go, where they go, you know, I, I didn't remember that until now, until I just started talking about it. I'm like, yes, I'm at a place with them that they haven't been themselves. And that's where it's just raw emotion. It's complete, you know, new and everything is fresh and it just comes pouring out of them. And, and that is the, as I said, the ultimate sweet spot in doing this whole thing. Yep. Yeah. 100%. And, and that's also where the, the value comes from. Um, when you think about the future historians out there who are looking back on all of this and they will have those stories um, that, no one else got these people to tell except for you. You were yeah. the one. And I, I just, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, there's an E4 somewhere with an incredible story to tell. And we forget about them because, well, you know, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> specialists in private first classes aren't all that valued in our organization. But that doesn't mean that they don't have something valuable to say. And so uh, that's why we continue to do this every week. We make no money. We tell it all the time. We make no money from this podcast. Um, you know, whatever people donate or whatever we do get from them, the limited sponsor we have, it's enough to keep us afloat to, you know, the, mm-hmm. the basic charges of keeping the podcast on the internet and, and uh, the download space and whatnot. But we're not in this whole thing for money. We're not in this whole thing to, to, to do anything other than tell stories that need to be told because frankly, everybody needs to hear them. And, and as you said, it's part of chronicling history and, uh, I think that that is uh, one of the key things of this whole thing. Yeah, man, that's incredible, really. And it, it is, it's such a privilege to be able to, um, you know, sit down with, you know, in a lot of cases, my heroes. I mean, we started off talking about those books I read by guys who served in Vietnam and kind of, you know, they built all of this stuff for the younger guys like me. You know, we stood on their shoulders and to be able to sit down now and, and literally speak with my heroes is just completely mind blowing. Incredible, incredible stuff. Well, listen, uh, again, the book is called Murphy's Law. I highly recommend you guys pick it up. Uh, it is an incredible story, and you got to see and hear some of it 
uh, earlier in the podcast. But Jack Murphy's podcast is called Team House. Make sure you guys check that out as well. It's been great talking with you, brother. I mean, really, it has. I've I've appreciated everything you had to say. And uh, certainly in reading up on you, honesty is sort of a hallmark of yours. And you didn't leave it. You didn't disappoint from that standpoint. No, thank you, Mark. I mean, anytime, anything I can do to help or anything you need from me, I mean, feel free to reach out. Well, it's been incredible. Again, uh, we'll stay in touch on Twitter. You can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Murphy, RGR. Jack Murphy, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yeah, thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.